This is part two of my conversation with Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins, the authors of Common Ground, Second Language Acquisition Theory Goes to the Classroom. We had so much to cover that I had to break it down into two episodes. Today, Florencia, Maris, and I discuss engaging the communication modes at different developmental levels. Then we look at moving from input to output, particularly when working with learners progressing from novice to intermediate. We talk about collaborating with colleagues and understanding what progress looks like in a proficiency-based classroom. We also have a rather amusing this or that conversation. So let's jump in. Are you a language teacher looking for some reassurance that what you're doing in the classroom is on the right track? Or maybe you're looking for some ways to teach even more effectively. If you're one or the other or somewhere in between, you've landed in the right place. This is the World Language Classroom Podcast with your host, me, Joshua Cabral. You're about to get tips, tools, and resources so that your students continue to rise in proficiency and communicate with confidence. Let's jump in. Vamos, allons-y. This will resonate with you a bit, Maris, having taught the elementary grade where presentational writing is not a huge aspect of what our world looks like, right? So Maris, would you agree that when, it, when we're looking at our, say, third graders, what's the mode there? Like, how, how do you look at the modes when it comes to your younger students? And the other thing with really young students is so many of them are pre-literate. So when we're talking about being able to read and get more input there, that's that's difficult. So I would say it kind of goes back to something Florencia touched on. And it's like, what can they really understand about the language? I, I would say actually about third grade is where we start writing a sentence or two in the language. But yeah, presentational writing isn't as much um, mm-hmm. of a thing. It's how it's what do they understand? With third grade, obviously, most of them can read. So based on reading, also based on what they have mm-hmm. heard and and having short conversations. So to go a little further with this idea of output, I think we, because we talk a lot about input, like everyone, I'm a CI teacher, I'm a comprehensible input teacher, input, input, input. And it's so important. I think we get that. Let's focus a bit more on the output. So to go a little further with that and to look at this idea of the novice learners and then the intermediate learners, I tend to find that a lot of the methodology that is packaged and put out there to me seems like it's very novice, not really providing opportunities for creating language. And so I'd like to spend some time really focusing on that idea of moving from novice to intermediate. And that's specifically going from output that's memorized chunks of language, which I think is really comfortable for students and teachers to use, to then creating with language on their own. And how can we craft that? And I'm going to totally say that I could be so off base with this question that it's like, why are you even asking that, Joshua? Because what happens is organically, if you have a situation where they're building this language system, they're organically going to start creating and not rely on chunk phrases. I, I'm assuming that doesn't happen, but please tell me I'm wrong with that. Um, I'm never going to have an opportunity to talk to two such esteemed colleagues as this. So let's talk about 
moving students from memorized chunks to creating on their own? That is a really, really complicated <laughs> question. Okay. So what you said in terms of organically is not way off. Uh, and I don't, I, I don't think anybody would say that doesn't happen. Of course that can happen. And of course there's an element of that. In the book, we say you can't hurry love or acquisition. Like there's only so much (laughs) we can do and control as teachers, right? So we can create the right conditions, but there's only so much we can do. I cannot get a student to go from novice low to intermediate low in one semester. I cannot, I cannot, unless I I have the the circumstances of putting that student to live and breathe Spanish 24 seven, I can't. So in the reality of my students come to class (laughs) for an hour, like I can't, like that is just not realistic because we're not gonna get that, right? So um, part of it, Part of it, I do think it has to do with patience uh, and the patience of understanding that this is going to take time, even when you look at the actual proficiency in the workplace poster, is not probably until after a year of study that students could even dream of being an intermediate low and then intermediate mid, I think it says after four, six semester sequence, right? It takes time, except for being completely immersed in the language. I don't think that it's realistic to do it so quickly in one course to be like, okay, I'm going to get you from novice high to intermediate low and everybody can do it, right? You can set a goal that some students will reach that target, but I, you know, we have to be realistic and it won't be everybody. I do think that there are maybe some things that we can keep in mind. What I would probably say, and this is probably very generic advice, but it's just something to think about. And it is how much we're keeping the training wheels on. I think that maybe, as you said, the students and the teachers, we are so comfortable <laughs> with the memorized sentences and they look so pretty or the, you know, the phrases that we're just copying, right? and all of the sentence starters and everything so controlled like there's some risk there are some imperfections right but for the most part we we want the language to look good right and we don't want them to struggle too much right to get frustrated that they don't remember how to say something and all that that maybe we have those training wheels a little too long and then all of a sudden we realize hey it's been two years they should be saying more why aren't you saying more, right? So I think that what I try to do is to increase that spontaneity. Spontaneity in writing or unassisted production gradually so that we're forcing those form meaning connections to be to, to stay strong, right? It, it, what I would say is that if you have the vocab list in front of you all the time, it's easy for you to just be looking at the word and you're retrieving the right word, right? But at what point are we pushing them to do the retrieval on their own? And I know that there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with having word lists and all of that. I think it's wonderful chat mats, you know, a lot of support for the students. I think that's great. But then let's think about how long we're leaving those training wheels on that they're relying, that they're still relying on that. And then they're getting frustrated when it's been two years or so, and they still not saying much on their own. So how can we balance that, that we're taking that after a while of being exposed to and using this word so much, that they don't even need to look at the word wall anymore, mm-hmm. that we're sort of taking it, taking it off. And then it became 
you have sort of acquired it. I know we have no evidence of acquisition in this fund and this, no, let's not get into that territory, <laughs> but that at least most of them are comfortable with that. And that if you struggle, that it's okay to struggle. And then we like, mm -hmm. what was the word for that? It happens even in our first language. What was the word for that? And then somebody gets it in that connection is sort of reactivated that that's okay, you know? And then again, like I said at the beginning, rewarding resourcefulness, right? That you don't always have to have the perfect exact word that was in the word world to communicate mm -hmm. whatever you wanted to say. That is just me because I do uh, do assessments where the students have to do an assisted production. And so I need to be gradually getting them there and getting them comfortable with that. And now that scary feeling of, I don't have my dictionary and my word wall and my this and my chat matters and everything in front of yeah. me. Can I still do it? Right. Just like what Marius was saying that yeah. you could run into somebody and have a conversation without all of those resources. Mm. So just gradually increasing spontaneity. So if, if you're doing interpersonal and it's always, always, always the rehearsal, the writing things down, right. A lot of the preparation, what if you start taking it away? So maybe you give them some time to take some notes, but then put the notes away and now have the conversation mm -hmm. with the, you know, with their classmate in front of me. Mm -hmm. Just like little by little that we get them comfortable to not feel like they always need to rely on the training wheels and that they can do it more on their own. Um, mm -hmm. I, I also think the, the other aspect yeah. of it is not just the memorized part of it, but obviously the quantity of language. And sometimes the quantity of language, I see it a lot, you know, when teachers say, you know, level up, so use more words, you know, to be connecting what you're saying and things mm -hmm. like that. And I think that's fine. Sometimes it is simply because the student doesn't say much. <laughs> you know, we all, mm -hmm. we, we all have our preference in terms of how much we yeah. like to talk and on what topics. So we need mm -hmm. to understand that too. So how much of it is simply us prompting the student, hey, tell me more about this or asking follow-up questions, yeah. even in writing, uh, right? So if they wrote something, ask them, tell me more about this part. Tell me more about this, elaborate here. Mm -hmm. But then of course we need to understand that just because we told them, hey, how about you add a prepositional phrase here? <laughs> With whom did you go, mm -hmm. right? Like that just because we manipulate their output in that sense, that doesn't mean now you are intermediate mid, right? That maybe it is what they can do with a lot of scaffolding and guidance that they can produce mm -hmm. something that looks like intermediate mid but for me yeah. to say now you are at the intermediate mid level it would need to be their own production if that makes sense their own performance right. on more than just that one topic right so i think it's just maybe because i'm a little bit pickier about that that terminology uh but yeah. I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that with prompting them uh helping them where they can elaborate so there's the two aspects right the, the yeah. quantity of language uh but then also they they are they just relying on these phrases and relying on you know, the, the, the supports that they always have, or is it more that it's coming from them and their own system? Do you want to add anything to that, Maris? Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like some of the, just kind of reiterating some of the things that I found, one of the key things is just finding something that really engages my students, that makes them want to produce and push more. I think sometimes offering two different types of prompts, like one that's more creative and one that's more um, maybe quote unquote real world will, will motivate students to start to produce more. But then I think kind of one thing I said earlier is 
telling them what it looks like to elaborate in a language. Because I think that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks that I saw with students is they don't understand like, yes, you can write a 10 sentence paragraph. But if you're just telling me I eat breakfast, I like lunch, like, and you know, I go to restaurants and not ever telling me any details to support that, then you're not actually moving into the intermediate levels. So showing them exactly like, what are we looking for when we're saying elaborate? Because I think with my eighth graders, especially, that's really where I'm pushing them is saying Mm -hmm. like, can you give me more details about this? Can you give me a specific example from something that we've talked about in class? So supporting them there, because I think that's where some of my students kind of um, find that stumbling block of like, yes, I'm writing a lot, Mm-hmm. But if you're not actually elaborating on it, you're not moving up into that intermediate level. And some of that not elaborating is because it's the comfort zone, right? And uh, it comes down to yeah. creating a classroom experience and atmosphere with that risk-taking. Like if we're not creating the risk-taking mm-hmm. atmosphere, then they're going to keep telling you, I like pizza. The last part of the book, the last part of Common Ground was the reality check. I really appreciated this because it was, again, the reminder that, you know, this isn't an ivory tower theoretical experience, that these these are real world things, you know, and Florencia, I keep, I'm going to go back and count the number of times you could say, I get it. Some teachers, you're forced in this situation. <laughs> and it's true. And, and I love that you say that because you do get it. You like in a way that that's what makes this book so powerful is that it's about the real world experience of taking this tried and true sort of the theory that's out there and making it real. And there were a couple of questions that came up. And these are questions that I think that a lot of teachers would have. And so I just want to talk through a couple of them to have some talking points for teachers. And the first one is, you know, say, I got this book and now I'm totally on board, but I'm the only person in my department, you know, or I do Lang chat, but I'm the only person in my department. So how can we collaborate with colleagues that are either resistant or are unaware of this approach? So I would say one thing that I learned that I think it was Laura Sexton told me was like, If you think about a race, there's going to be people who are running. Those are like the lane chatters, the people that are really excited about it. There's going to be people walking who have maybe heard of it and are starting to get it. And then there's the people that are sitting on the bench that are nowhere or they're close to the race. But and really focus on the people that are walking, because I think some of the time we focus on those people that are are not anywhere near this and are not necessarily looking to change. Like they might have a fun classroom. They might have a great relationship with their students. Their students might like their class and they don't feel the need to, to change. And so I think the more you focus on those people, the kind of frustrated that you're going to get. So if you can focus on the people that are already starting, like maybe they want to do a little bit more speaking in their class, or maybe they really like the cultural sections and want to try to do um, more culture in the target language. Anyone that you can find that you can kind of focus on that, try to start there. Because I think sometimes we think that 
we should convince everyone who is a world language teacher to make these changes. And that's where we're just going to like to frustrate ourselves and it, and at times become alienated from our departments, which, you know, unfortunately in kind of social media, I've seen people say like, no one wants to hear my ideas, which is heartbreaking and extremely sad. But I think that that's one mm-hmm big piece of advice that I have is to kind of start with people that maybe want to make little changes and help them to make those changes or share an activity that really worked with you or share an activity that worked that you think even, you know, if it's a reading activity, most teachers are doing some sort of reading in their class. Not to use the cliche, but find that common ground. The other question that reality check section and it's this idea of progress. How are we looking at and defining progress in this approach? What I would say, that was my whole keynote <laughs> at Iowa, right? Unpacking progress. Doing the shift that I said before, right? That it's not, we're not assessing correct use of vocab and grammar taught, but rather we are assessing successful communication at their level. I think a lot of things change in terms of progress towards that goal, what it looks like. And for me, we have to help the students understand that progress is not going to be necessarily going up a sub-level or going up a level, forget it, right? Going up a level, wow. A sub-level, sometimes that is not going to happen in one year. And I understand that, I mean, I write syllabi for my courses. I cannot put in the syllabi hey, by the end of this course, you're going to be at the same level as when you started. What selling point is that, right? The university will be like, what are you doing? The students are going to be like, why would I take the course then? But deep down, you and I know that is the case for many students. They're still at the same level. I cannot promise them they're going to go up a level in one year or in one semester. So I think we need to rethink what that progress is going to look like. It may not be one sub-level as defined by ACFO, but mm-hmm. it can certainly be that they can talk about or understand more topics. And that is progress that we need to show them that before they didn't know about this and now you know about this, that before maybe you couldn't understand an infographic on this topic and now you can, right? So maybe approaching it from the topics, I think everybody's making progress in that sense for sure. In my case, I do like to help them realize the progress they have made in terms of fluency. That if I ask them the same question I asked them on week one, that they can respond much faster with fewer hesitations. Not perfect, not native-like, no one's using those terms. It's just in terms of the fluency of how Mm -hmm. more quickly you can retrieve from your system or much more confident. So fewer of these, you know, pauses and restarts, that is progress in my book. So I think we need to just rethink of that, you know, even the resourcefulness that I talked about before, that maybe week one, if I asked you something, you would get so frustrated that you just couldn't remember the word. And how do you say this? And how do you say that? And it feels like you're like tripping over every time you start to talk or or you start to write. And then if I ask you to do that now, the same thing, the same topic again, the same question again, that you're going to be like, okay, maybe Mm -hmm. I still don't remember that word or don't know, but I know that I can simplify it and use this other word, right? That resourcefulness is progress, right? So I think that we just need to Mm -hmm. package it differently. It's not going to look like the guidelines make it look like, and that's okay. Maybe you made progress in one sub area of the guidelines, not quite you're at the next level, 
But let's say asking questions. Asking questions is one of those things from the intermediate range, right? That students at the intermediate range are able to ask questions. Maybe they haven't quite gotten there <laughs> in terms of sustaining sentence level for every topic or, or even you know most topics, but maybe they're doing better at asking questions. Hey, let's celebrate that. That is progress. You're making progress towards that goal. So I think that sometimes we need to not get so, so caught up. I understand you're doing Apple, you're doing Stamp, <laughs> the seal and all of that, and you want them to get to a level and yes, go for it by all means. But if you don't need to define it in that in that sense, if, if you can just help the students view their progress differently and celebrate those little steps towards the goal, I think that makes a huge difference, um, even in how you discuss it with parents, with admin, how you present it in your syllabi. It, it, we just need to rethink progress and not be so always thinking of levels, right? And like a ladder that you always need to be going up. I'm thinking about progress. If you have a very narrow thought process about what progress is. And I'm just thinking like the last couple of years with the pandemic and it was sort of so much was lost, yet there was so much that students learned about resiliency yeah. and there was learning happening. I'm remembering one of the sections in case you were wondering, and it was about teaching culture. There's always the, what happens if I have to explain something in the native language? You know, do I throw everything out the door? And what you ended up putting in there was sometimes if something doesn't happen in the target language, it doesn't mean that learning isn't happening. And Absolutely. so I just like, as you were talking, that's what was coming up that like there are skills happening that aren't necessarily exactly proficiency level based to think larger about progress. That, that is a great point. Um, even when we have students do creative projects, right? So I have my students, for example, create an infographic, create comic strips, right? Create a flyer. Those are skills that people are using in their jobs, right? So that is also progress. If the students are gaining these skills, they're doing it in Spanish, maybe with some errors, that's okay. They're still learning. Hey, how do you present information in an infographic? Like, let's look at it, right? It's not just some random icons. If you're going to communicate in a comic strip, you have to be pretty strategic, right? You're not going to write a dissertation, right? You have to be like, how can you write the, the short things and presenting it? And what about the gestures of the characters? I think that there's so much more that's going into it that, you know, it goes beyond just the linguistic competence of communicative competence. So this book, as I started saying, uh, Common Ground, I was giddy at the beginning because I was getting to spend this last hour of my life with uh, two people that I really look up to. <laughs> yes, I'm going to gush and that's fine. So this book and your work and your approach has been so inspiring and it's inspiring so many teachers i would like to know where you continue to find your drive and inspiration from maris where are you pulling your inspiration from i would say that um i've been really lucky to like be involved on twitter reading a ton of blogs i blog too but that was really kind of where i got my start and where i continue to find a lot of inspiration and having really close relationships with colleagues that I talk to regularly. So colleagues via Twitter that I talk to a lot and also my own colleagues that I work with. This year, I'm really lucky because one of my colleagues and I are teaching the exact same class. And so to see how she is looking at lessons that I've taught before and transforming them has been amazing. And then my other colleague who teaches French, 
we share a lot and we talk a lot and to see how she has interpreted some activities as well, like has been the click that I needed to make them work in my class. And so I'd say, you know, I'm just really lucky to have friends, both like local and national that I get to work with. And then of course, going to professional development mm-hmm. is always like that jolt that you need. Florencia, where's your inspiration coming from? I think my answer is going to be very, very similar to Mary's in the sense that um, social media, mm-hmm. I, I like social media. I know it has its negative aspects, but um, I like it a lot to just feel inspired sometimes by activities. Meredith White shares so many things on Twitter that are like, oh my God, I can use it or just you build on it, right? You don't have to always have like everything taken as, you know, straight from somebody, but maybe somebody, you know, proposes so just like we have in the book. And then you go like, Oh, I can do that, you know, with my upper level, but I would need to change the topic and I would change this and I would tweak it to do that. But just that you, you get the inspiration of that is a fun idea. And now I'm going to be like expand it, build it, adapt it, twist it and make it your own. Right. And that's the last line of common ground, right? It's like mm-hmm. take our ideas and make them your own. So yeah, I think it, it, social media definitely is still inspiring for me. Also, teaching the methods course going back to the beginning you know when you're talking to future teachers or teachers you know in their very first year and they're looking at things in a way that i haven't looked at in a while because i've been teaching for so long uh it just gives you a different angle or they propose like but what if you do this and you go like wow i've never thought of that i mean to me i I love having those conversations with them so uh, to me that is it is very inspiring and then of course yes professional development collaborating with people and co-presenting with claudia fernandez from university of illinois chicago and our presentation is about transforming activities from textbooks you know like traditional activities to make them more proficiency based and i mean we just spent two hours today just just talking and going (laughs) over activities and a million different ways in which we would change them right so that those kinds of conversations i think they're they're very very um very inspiring and then the last thing that i'll say is in my youtube channel (laughs) i'm back in language pedagogy to create an episode or to do you know a a video i have to read through a lot of articles or through a lot of you know things that people have written it's funny how much i get an idea from something or i'm like well but why did i do that i would have done this you know just sometimes from reading and having to process things and then having to explain it to somebody else you come up with mm-hmm. new ideas as well. Um, so a little bit of a combination of all that. I would now like to pull the teacher researcher curtain back Ooh. a little bit and have my last little section here on my podcast where we play this or that. So we can get to know a little more about you that's not going to be necessarily about your work in the research classroom my answers are going to be dogs for every single one i'm Uh, just going to choose dogs dogs. so there There are no (laughs) questions about animals (laughs) so uh, you have to be on your toes the first one is if you are reading a book or watching a movie or a TV show. Do you like a story that is a slow burn or do you like the action to just happen right away? Oh, action, please. (laughs) My videos are 10 minutes long. Like, do I look like I can sit patiently for an hour or more? No. I'm a Jack Russell Terrier. I cannot, I'm sorry. Just keep me entertained quick or I 
Loose, loose focus. Yeah. <laughs> See, I said there were no dog questions. And you put this. a dog in I your told answer. You, I'm going to bring dogs into the conversation every um, time. I how, about, how about you, Maris? I would probably say action, although, like, I watch Hallmark Channel movies and cooking shows. <laughs> and so, like, I don't know how, how action packed or slow burn cooking shows are. <laughs> I think at the end of a Hallmark movie, the burn is still going. I don't think that they actually... <laughs> it is. Oh my okay. All right. So the next one, when it comes to traveling, do you have places that you love and enjoy that you like to go back to when you have a chance to travel? Or do you like to go to a new place and a new adventure? Okay, it's a good question. Um, if I have to choose only one and only one, I would go with a new adventure. Mm -hmm. But I have to tell you, I am not the best at traveling. I used to like traveling. And as I but then you have dogs. as I've gotten older and I, <laughs> as I have adopted more dogs, see, here we go. Uh, traveling has become challenging and just, I don't know, it just gives me anxiety. It's sad, but it just... Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if I would change my answer necessarily, but something inside of me says I would probably still be more interested in a new place than going back to the same place, you know, frequently. Mm -hmm. How about you, Maris? I know. I feel like I would say a new place, but I typically go to the same places because most of mm -hmm. the time now my vacations revolve around like seeing family. So mm -hmm. I go back to Virginia Beach all the time, which is where I'm originally from. But I feel like when I'm there, sometimes I do like to try new things. And I really like, since I live in Washington, D.C., I love to try a lot of new things within D.C. So You still managed to get a dog in that answer for us. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's see if I can do it for the third one. I don't know Here's how you're going to do it in this one, but maybe. Oh, okay. let's see. Uh, so... Being out in the conference world and presenting, one always has this expectation that you're really extroverted rather than introverted. That's not always the case. How would you define yourself on the, on that spectrum of introvert and extrovert? Awkward. I am awkward. I am awkward. I think I become very extroverted with people that I then, you know, chit chat with and become comfortable with. But as I demonstrated repeatedly at the last ATSP, <laughs> I can be, you know, in a circle of colleagues and everybody seems to be talking and I just sit there quietly, like smiling and nodding. But I just... I don't know why I, I just shut down unless the conversation is about dogs <laughs> and then I'm happy to chime in and, and talk with everybody. And we're all best friends after that. Uh, oh, I can't believe you got that in there. All right. And I'm not even going to edit it out just so that I can. <laughs> don't. Please don't. How about you, Maris? Um, no, I was going to say I am very extroverted in that I like to go out and, and talk to people and, you know, but I can be very awkward as well. Like my husband will always tell me that was so awkward. Why did you do that? Um, so I hope that people come up and talk to me. I will try my, like, I'm excited to talk to people. I like to talk to people and I will do my best not to be awkward while I'm talking to people at conferences, but no promises. Same, same. Please, please go. Come say hi, even if I look like I don't want to talk to anyone. I'm sorry, I cannot help it. I, I try to look friendly and approachable. 
but I look awkward. I know I look awkward. Well, that was a brilliant way of bringing dogs into all of the answers. And we've learned so much more about you. <laughs> and so I'm, uh, I'm sure that there are teachers out there listening that have found ways to connect with both of you. But uh, just as a reminder to them where they can find you, where they can reach out, or if they're reaching out for the first time. Where's the best ways to be doing that? For me, it would be Twitter, Prof F Henshaw. And then uh, on Facebook is Unpacking Language Pedagogy. And then that is also my YouTube channel, Unpacking Language Pedagogy. I am Maris Hawkins. So at Maris Hawkins on Twitter, um, my blog is Maris Hawkins dot wordpress.com mm-hmm. luckily with the name of maris i didn't have to <laughs> get be too creative but teachers may want to reach out to you to talk about common ground or dogs um <laughs> so all those different reasons yes you know i have gotten questions about dog training so yeah people do talk to me wow. about dogs that's gonna be your next yeah. book I actually was a blogger for dog blog, but yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm not, I was a dog trainer. Yeah. So, but please don't ask me questions about dogs. Can we just talk about dogs? I just, I cannot give you advice about dogs. Yeah. I, it's too oh, much too pressure. Much. It's too much yes. pressure. Well, I would appreciate if you could give us some hearty piece of advice when it comes to the, the approach that you're finding effective for language teaching and for teachers to go into their classrooms, whether that's tomorrow, next week, or think about things differently. What's your advice for for teachers that are looking to you for advice? I would say two things. One, just remember that we try to do all these things in our classroom, but we don't always have it together. Um, So sometimes I think it seems like a really big shiny facade that all of our classes are perfect and all of that. So just always keep that in mind with anything. But then also, I hope that most people can find a small thing that they can do, whether it's adding to a reading activity or incorporating an extra speaking activity. But again, remember that, as you said, they don't have to do it all and you don't have to do it all. I know that I definitely did not as I was changing from more legacy ways to teaching for proficiency. There's definitely middle ground and that I hope people can find that as they continue to on their teaching journey. What I would say is probably what I've said many times in this episode, that focus on successful communication at their level. And then what do we mean by that? The two questions we give in Common Ground are what content, what messages are being exchanged that you're understanding or conveying and the purpose. Why, why do I want to know that? Why do I want to convey that, right? Try to give them some sort of a concrete purpose for it that goes beyond the pedagogic purpose of practicing. Mm-hmm right, which may or may not be motivated enough uh, for, for learners. I have expanded those questions, but the one that I would add definitely is, is it an achievable and enjoyable challenge? So the students need to feel like they're into it, not so, so easy that they lose you know, uh, interest, but not so difficult that it's, it seems impossible for them to do it, don't even wanna try. So you kind of have to find that balance of achievable challenge, but it has to be enjoyable. Every single second of everything you do has to be perfect, mm-hmm. <laughs> according to some book. It doesn't. And, and it, it doesn't work that way. And Maris's class doesn't work that way. In my class, we're just aiming for that. We're trying for that. There's a lot of 
adaptation that goes into application of principles. Excellent. Thank you for those those parting words that are going to be so useful for for teachers and for everything that you've you've shared throughout not only your book but in this conversation here. So I just want to remind listeners that there is a link in the show notes to get your own copy of Common Ground, Second Language Acquisition Theory Goes to the Classroom. And if you get it through the link to Hackett Publishing and use the code WLC2022, you will get a 25% discount. So make sure that you get it through there. And if you don't have the book already, I recommend getting it absolutely. So thank you so much again, Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins, for putting this book together for us and for joining me to talk about it. I, I could not be more thrilled for this experience. Thank you so much. We really appreciate the series. We appreciate all the comments we have received from teachers, all the love for Common Ground. I, words cannot express how grateful I am uh, for everyone's support. I, and never in my wildest dreams <laughs> did I think that it was going to take off as it did. Uh, in fact, I told Maris when we were writing it, look, if we help even one teacher, I would be happy. So for us, uh, this has been overwhelming in a, in a good way. And we're trying to take it all in and if we could say thank you to each and every person who has bought the book, we totally would. Thank you. I certainly hope that hearing directly from the authors of Common Ground helps you to better understand and feel confident with the approach that Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins outline in their book. I'm incredibly appreciative of all that they do to support language teachers and for joining me here on the podcast. It was a real honor for me. Be sure to check out the show notes to connect with Florencia and Maris. And remember, you can get Common Ground for 25% off through Hackett Publishing by going to the link in the show notes and using the code WLC2022. You'll also see the link to sign up for Talking Points, my weekly email newsletter with tips and resources for language teaching. There are also links to get in touch with me if you'd like to work together, either in person in your school or remotely. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the World Language Classroom Podcast. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at WL Classroom. You can also see over 250 blog posts about language teaching at, you guessed it, wlclassroom.com.